Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. Welcome to Marketing Today. I'm your host, Alan Hart, managing partner of Atomic, combining brand science and creative fire. Today on the show, I have Peter Horst, former CMO of the Hershey Company. Prior to Hershey, he spent 12 years at Capital One. Before Capital One, he was the CMO of Ameritrade, and his early days started his career at General Mills. On the show today, we talk about digital transformation and innovation in marketing, what he's been doing and trying to accomplish at Hershey over the past year as well as where he sees digital going, how to think about it, what kind of talent model you need, and the types of partners that make the best sense in today's world. So Peter, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Give me a little description and and the listeners here about your most recent role at Hershey, and then maybe do a little compare and contrast about how how that role is different in a consumer packaged goods environment versus financial services at Capital One. Sure. Well, it does seem that these days, uh, more than any other C-suite role, the CMO job is kind of a snowflake in that each one is a little bit different from the next in terms of the functional scope and the accountabilities that, that fall within that role. My role at Hershey was fun because it was really such a mixed bag of activities. From a content perspective, I was responsible for the global brands and the integrated campaigns and everything related to global design. I was also responsible for our global snacking strategy, where to play, how to win, go to market strategies, providing inputs to, you know, M&A and organic uh, uh, development. And in addition, all the global innovation rolled up to me, whether product or packaging or business model innovation. So a lot of stuff from a content perspective. 
From the process side, I had the agencies, media, digital advancement, and everything that related to the overall kind of standard of marketing excellence across the enterprise and building capabilities. And then finally, there was another bucket of activity, which was really a P&L, represented by the combination of a few different businesses. There was the Hershey retail stores, kind of the flagship stores around the world, the retail travel business, the you know, duty-free stores in the airports around the world, and global licensing, which together were kind of a form of you know, brand activation and experiential marketing that we get paid for. It was a really fun mix of, of very, very different accountabilities. One major difference between the roles between Capital One and Hershey, of course, was that you know, Capital One had direct customer relationship, and that opened up an ability to you know, much more immediately and directly leverage data and analytics and a more kind of hands-on, real-time understanding of the customer behavior and tighter closed-loop kind of marketing analytic environment. Um, it also called for a lot more attention on the totality of the customer experience because so much of that fell within our four walls. Another big difference between the, the roles was that, you know, in a financial arena, the product itself is increasingly digital. And that, in fact, enabled and actually required a very different type and pace of innovation. Whereas in a packaged goods world, you know, you're often looking at operations capabilities and plant capital and sell-in timeframes to major customers that can really push out your innovation agenda. And then finally, I guess a major difference was, you know, the fact that Capital One is a financial enterprise. It required a really seamless hand-in-glove partnership between the people who do, you know, what you might call the traditional marketing and innovation, along with the people who build the credit models and do the deep analytics and the financial engineering, so that you end up with a proposition that's both consumer compelling and financially sound. So from the perspective of how the marketing teams engaged with the rest of the enterprise, it called for a different kind of cross-functional uh, alignment. Well, recently you won or were awarded the 2016 CMO Club Innovation Award. So first, congratulations. Thank you. And second, I'm curious, I mean, that award in particular is one that's nominated by your peers. And I'm wondering what that, you know, winning an award like that means to you. Well, you know, I think the first thing it means is that I got to work with a great team because, you know, when you operate at this kind of scale, it's all about having a great ecosystem of passionate people across functions, not just in marketing great people in the agencies, all coming together to do great stuff. You know, there's no such thing as the single hero that earned that award. But another thing about this particular award that, that's really kind of gratifying is that it recognizes how much ground we covered in a pretty short time. You know, we were running really hard to reinvent our overall marketing ecosystem to enable a truly modern, agile, digitally infused marketing model. So when I look at how quickly we really overhauled our, our agency setup, our internal capabilities, and you know, remaking our brand strategies and campaigns for just about every major brand, I think we made amazing progress. But it's nice to see you know, people outside the organization you know, thinking we made some progress too. And then you know, I guess the last thing is that, as you pointed out, it's kind of nice that this is uh, you know, coming from peers, from other CMOs, and in a sense represents kind of a, a People's Choice Award. So feels good to get that kind of nod from uh, from the peer set. Well, congratulations again. Thank you. So digital is a 
extremely large space. And as of late, there's been a lot of controversy, whether that's in the agency environment with kickbacks and rebates, or even Facebook with the fact that they were overhyping their their measures. So a lot of people, I think, are struggling with what they should be doing and how, how far to tilt towards the digital side. And I'm curious, you've been a CMO at a very digitally savvy company, Capital One, and, and then making those digital transformations at Hershey. What is your advice to other CMOs? How should they be thinking about digital? Boy, well, we could probably spend all day on this one. <laughs> sure. um, but but l- let's start in the broadest sense. You know, I think at this point, we probably shouldn't be asking ourselves, you know, how do I approach digital? Because for one thing, it's just too big and fat a term and too broad an arena for there to be a single thought process that really captures it and, and does justice to it. Sure. But probably more importantly, we're at a point where we need to look at all things digital in terms of, you know, what's the job they need to do? What am I trying to get done for the business? How does this digital thing play a role or not in that? As opposed to thinking about an obligation to serve this big, vague thing called a digital imperative that in some ways is its own end. And digital imperative thinking was important, I think, you know, at a time in an organization to get over the hump of, you know, breaking out of the traditional, you know, assumptions and habits and ways of doing things and getting some momentum forward motion in terms of making some of those tough decisions. So to say, hey, we got to get digital, let's push ourselves, let's kind of blow up budgets and rethink under the banner of a let's get digital, you know, is appropriate at a point in time. But as you kind of alluded to, we've certainly seen a lot of organizations making big digital moves with a capital D that were more about digital than about accomplishing a marketing task. And they're now trying to kind of recenter and find that sweet spot. You know, as an example, it's much more helpful, I think, to think about video on screens and how do I optimize that versus parsing it out into buckets to say, okay, what's going to be my TV strategy and what's going to be my digital video strategy, but to increasingly get sort of channel agnostic and thinking about, you know, what role do these various tools play and how do I orchestrate them to the best overall effect? You know, in terms of some of the controversy you mentioned, the A&A report, transparency and payola and all that sort of thing. You know, when you step back in one sense, it's really not terribly surprising that we should find ourselves in this kind of situation. You know, we've got this huge multi-billion dollar world that seemingly overnight just got way more complicated with hundreds, thousands of new players, new processes, new technologies, ways of working that were overnight different than they were, you know, yesterday. So in a lot of ways, how surprising is it that some bad actors found ways to work angles around the system or that some well-intentioned actors got some things wrong? So, you know, in terms of that whole, you know, arena, I think it really just comes down to, once again, transparency and focusing on that. With the kind of money that's flowing, with the kind of business results that we now absolutely depend on in, in these, quote, new channels, we just can't anymore afford to have relationships that are based on the idea of, you know, trust me and don't worry your pretty head about it. You know, that doesn't mean that we have to live in a culture of cynicism, suspicion, and and we don't have partners with great relationships and trust. But it does mean that as marketers, we'll need full visibility into the marketing value chain, the data that comes from it, the relationships and the money that flow through it, so that we can make sure, you know, we're making best decisions that are money's going to highest best use and that we can you know turn to our CFOs and our board and our shareholders and say yeah we're doing the right thing with the resources we're entrusted with I like what you said which is counterintuitive about being channel agnostic to really integrate 
digital as not just a thing by itself, but where does your content live and, and what are you trying to achieve from a, from a business standpoint? That's right. It's more and more just what's, what's the task that you need done and right. which of these things is the right way to do it. And, you know, to some extent, you could say video is video. It's delivering an experience that is more immersive and rich than, you know, perhaps another more static form. And whether that's a video living on Facebook or a video living on NBC, you know, those are probably increasingly more interchangeable than, than we give them credit for. Interesting. So along that theme, P&G recently publicly said they were pulling back from targeted Facebook efforts. I'm really trying to find, I think, that right balance between reach versus targeting. How have you thought about that in the past? Because it can be a slippery slope with all the different dynamics that I can segment an audience now. Yeah, this is another one of those you know great pendulum swings, and uh, another one of those just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. <laughs> um, but you know there is this great allure of the data and the analytics and the various vendors of technologies and channels and services and so forth that's you know will will dazzle you with the amazing ability to target red haired left handed people who like peanut butter only <laughs> tried yours once but use the competitors <laughs> twice a week for lunch and oh my god with the perfect creative message to get these people and then you've got this amazingly smart analytically brilliant targeted program that reaches nine people and even worse <laughs> you may end up reaching those nine people 50 times and driving them completely crazy and alienating them forever from your brand so you know it's back to this this notion of in a very kind of unsexy, blue-collar way, what's the job you need to get done, right? What kind of growth do you need? Well, therefore, how many people do you, you need to buy how often? And therefore, how many people do you need to reach? And that may call for a great degree of targeting. It may call for a, a broader reach, and therefore, you don't kind of need as much. But it's really just always turning back to, you know, what are you trying to do and what's the tool you need to do it? Now, the analytical targeting, you know, can be a staggeringly powerful thing, particularly as you get into categories where, you know, the, there's a higher customer value, where you can get more payback and unlock more value, the sharper your targeting gets. Yeah, but when you're talking about a jar of peanut butter or a chocolate bar and a fairly modest, you know, payback available to you for that effort. You know, you really have to be thoughtful about both what scale do you need, how much targeting can you afford uh, to invest in, and and find that sweet spot. But boy, is it a siren call to uh, to, to kind of go full on with with all the brilliant targeting you can leverage. So now you've had a portfolio of brands at Hershey's trying to drive digital integration. I'm sure not all brands you want to integrate at the same level. But how do you, as a CMO, start to think about that? What what are the types of questions you're asking yourself? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head there, is that there's really no single answer to that question. And I think that's where a lot of companies go wrong. It's by saying, we must hit X percent of spend on digital. Now, as a thought-provoking starting point to say, hey, let's ask ourselves, you know, what would it look like if, or why wouldn't we, or how high should up be? You know, that's okay. But to get too prescriptive in terms of, you know, this is the percent across brands, I think it's pretty dangerous. And it's it's really looking through the wrong end of the telescope. So rather than saying, what's the right percent of digital, but to say, for this brand, given its stage of development, given its target consumer, given what we're trying to get done in terms of business goals and aspirations, then what role do these available channels play in the marketing plan? So, you know, at Hershey, we didn't take that broad brush cookie cutter sort of template but looked brand by brand. And the result was, you know, we had some brands that were 100% 
all digital. And we had other brands that were overwhelmingly traditional. And again, it just came down to who are we trying to reach? Where are they spending their time? What's the nature of the, the message, the nature of the engagement we're trying to uh, to deliver? And what's the right mix? So an incredible uh, diverse spread of mixes and percentages in digital. So, you know, the key is to make sure that you're challenging yourself to ask whether you're kind of living old, tired assumptions, whether you're getting too carried away on the other extreme of a bandwagon of digital and doing stuff because it's cool, but but really thinking of, you know, maintaining a right balance of the vast majority of your money in the things that you know are going to drive the business, pushing the edge with another 20% to then, you know, if you can, reserving some for the really exploratory, zero expectations associated with it, but it's more about learning and finding that next opportunity for growth, but without the burden of, of expecting immediate ROI from it. So in a world of this increasing data-driven marketing, data just keeps coming at us, whether it's good data or bad data or just data for data's sake, is there still space for the human-created creativity? Yeah, this is something that I think about a lot and actually, you know, worry some about. Um, and even uh, wrote a piece for HBR with a colleague about this very topic last year. Mm. You know, I think it's going to get increasingly more challenging to maintain that right balance of art and science, of machine speed and human insight. But, you know, it's the the fundamental whole brain nature of marketing that got me into it in the first place. And I think there is a reasonable worry that the power and lure of big data, of predictive analytics and all these amazing capabilities can really start to tip the pendulum too far in the area of, you know, the technology versus kind of the human input. So I think it's one that we're going to need to be very consciously thoughtful about resisting the overpull and insisting on having the right balance. You know, as an example, all the analytics in the world still can't answer the question why, right? Why is the consumer behaving this way? You know, it can tell you the what, you know, this correlates with that. People wearing t-shirts on Sunday eat bagels. Okay, so now I've got a t-shirt bagel promotional opportunity, but why is that going on, right? And and to get to that why and to get there confidently, I think still calls for that human being to sit there and empathize and understand and connect the dots and fill in the space to say, you know, this is what's going on. So therefore, this would be the most appropriate resonant way for my brand to show up. But if we fully delegate marketing decisions, you know, which product to promote to whom, which image to plop into this scary notion of real-time generated creative, yeah, you know, we run the risk of horribly missing the boat with a consumer. You know, we, we, we've read a bunch recently about you know, targeting consumer mood. You can now place an ad based on the emotional tonality of a piece of music that a consumer is listening to. And maybe even, you know, you can correlate it with what they're eating. You know, maybe they're eating a piece of chocolate. So therefore, what? We, we could make assumptions about they're listening to happy music. That means they're happy. So let's hit them with a happy chocolate message. Well, are they trying to cheer themselves up because they're feeling bad or are they actually feeling good? Would a chocolate ad sync with their good mood? Would it cheer them up if they're feeling blue or would it make them feel worse if they're feeling blue because they're unhappy with their weight, right? So there's, we, we could get sucked into a presumption based on what, you know, the analytics seem to tell us, but really miss the human truth in there. So that's where I think, you know, we get into some dangerous territory without kind of the appropriate level of human intervention. So, you know, if you're the, the, the CMO of Subway and the analytics may tell you to pop me a coupon for the sandwich, you know, I love, but I haven't purchased it recently, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly smart thing to do. But if it's cold and rainy outside, it might be a stronger brand building move to pop me a coupon for a hot bowl of soup because, you know, you know, I need to warm my bones. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That, that I think, is still a, a human intervention thought that would override, you know, the mathematical projection of next best, you know, action might be a pastrami sandwich. Right. I think we absolutely need to embrace all of what big data analytics and AI can do, but we're also stepping back and, you know, bringing just a little bit of skepticism and asking ourselves, does this make sense? Could I explain this to myself? And even could I explain it to our consumers? You know, what one CMO I interviewed here for this article said, if the data tells him to take an action or deliver a promotion to a consumer, but he couldn't explain to that consumer why he's doing it without seeming creepy or mysterious, then don't do it, right? Because right. it just says that there's something there that's just stepping over a line. You know, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're always going to need that that human participation because, you know, we're about engaging minds as, as well as hearts. Right. You talked a little bit in there about a whole brain, being a whole brain marketer. And I'm curious the implications of all of this on talent and especially this kind of emerging or, or blended definition of creativity. How do you think about talent? And, and when you think about talent, I'm sure that includes not only in-house folks, but also your partners that you choose to work with. Yeah. So that's another big one. I mean, there's no question that, uh, you know, the marketing talent model is just changing tremendously for the reasons you touch on and others as well. You know, broadly, we're seeing the role of marketing get more deeply drawn into an increasingly wide set of accountabilities. The customer experience is a great example. You know, that's an arena that touches operations, IT, sales, customer service, and more. So the function is both getting more and more strategic, while at the same time, it's getting more and more technical as digital and data and analytics become more of an inseparable part of you know, the stuff of daily marketing. You know, all this means, I think we need marketers who are influencers, who are able to go forth and lead initiatives beyond the borders of their direct reports. We need marketers who are broad enterprise thinkers and are not just sort of consumer zealots, you know, with the flaming sword of a brand, but are really thinking holistically about the business and able to connect all these dots. And that, you know, calls for marketers can bring a, a general management mindset who can take things all the way to the bottom line and really participate in these, you know, tough trade-off and allocation decisions. And then, you know, to, to where you started, you know, we need marketers who 
have the ability to not just, you know, sit with the cool cats from the agencies and, and talk about positioning, but who can really understand the data and analytics and technologies sufficient to be a good partner to organizations like IT, right? Because they're not going to be coding the systems themselves, but they need to be intelligent consumers. They need to be, you know, thoughtful partners and directors and users of, of that stuff. And then, you know, on IT's side, you know, we need analysts and technologists who are themselves consumer sensitive and able to think in terms of how their capabilities can be tuned and leveraged to support a customer agenda. So, you know, you've got to have these sort of great seamless partnerships across these groups, kind of like, you know, the quarterback and the receiver, the, the composer and the lyricist who can work hand in glove and understand each other and understand and respect their, their crafts so that, you know, they can do things in a powerful way as a team. You know, as far as implications for agencies, yeah. You know, there, there's two angles to that. One is, you know, what do you do yourself? What do you turn to an agency for? And that, I think, really depends on where are you in terms of journey of developing your own capability. Early on, it can make a ton of sense to use an external agency to help you jumpstart and get up and running efficiently and let you learn how the overall engine works before getting more fully invested in any one part or all of it. And then the other consideration there is just you know, as you step back and think about the whole value chain, which parts do you feel are critical for you to absolutely own and keep internally versus which might be more efficient or more effective to source from an agency? So as an example, you might say, we just got to own and manage our own data. Um, we need that internally. That's just mission critical. Um, so step one is investing in a DMP and the staff who can kind of manage it, put it up and running and leverage it. But you may say, you know what, the complexity of uh, managing and the challenge of staffing a full programmatic media buying team in-house or just beyond what I want to take on, even if I could theoretically argue that there's some ROI in it, I'm just going to turn that part of it over to an agency. But then the other aspect of your question is kind of what agency do you want in the mix right. and what right. do they need to bring to the party? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing increasing value from the agency that is really more of a holistic partner who themselves mirror that kind of whole brain expansive capability that I described before. So the notion of agency as TV script factory, you know, I think becomes less and less useful. But I love it when agencies say, tell me your business problem. You know, what, what are you trying to get done? What are the issues so that I can be not just a creative, you know, production house, but I can be a problem solver along with you and come to you with provocative ideas and address the bigger picture versus just address, address the narrow task that is described in the brief. And those are the ones that I see, you know, becoming more and more trusted partners in this increasingly bewildering and, and nerve wracking world. Do you think there's a, an agency out there? I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you think there's an agency or two out there that's, that's doing that, that you could, you could name? Oh, gosh, I sort of, sort of hate to do that. But, but I think agencies that have the benefit of being cut from whole new cloth mm -hmm. and inventing themselves from the get-go have a bit of an advantage in that they can kind of conceive of their capabilities, their structure, their processes from the start to be born modern and infused with digital and holistic. I think the agencies that are working from more of a legacy position that have just deeper, more entrenched infrastructure in sort of a, a, an older way are quickly moving there and making good progress, but it's just a little bit more of a challenge for them to, to get there. Right. You talked about learning from agencies and, and kind of getting your, getting your foundations in place and then deciding from there, what do I bring in-house and... and or, or not? And what pieces yeah. do I want to own? You're not an agency guy. I realize that. But where do you think the agency business model needs to evolve to? 
to make sure that they can, you know, provide that leadership, I guess, in some regards. But also once the, you know, the, the retained revenue of those functions go in-house, you know, what's the business model, you, you know, sustainable business model you think that they need to move towards? Yeah. Well, you know, their, their business model sits within this broader, um, you know, increasingly complex, multifaceted, bewildering ecosystem of the various data technology players, media channels. So, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure where the agency model is going to go, uh, but I'll start from what do I think are the needs on the brand marketer side? You know, agencies and other, you know, types of entities can play a role in fulfilling that. But, you know, I spoke to this, this incredible proliferation of players and, you know, the taxonomy of who does what in the digital space and people getting paid to serve my ad that I never heard of, but they're getting money from me somehow and they're playing a little role in this vast, you know, interconnected network of activity. And that, that all leads to the sort of angst and, and concerns over transparency and, and trust that, that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. So I think there's just a need for someone to bring some sense, some coordination, some trusted stewardship of all of this activity in ways that enables the brand to feel in control and comfortable, but not sucked into the morass of every knit and gnat of, of this, you know, this world. So I think agencies can play a role as kind of the trusted partner, the sort of Sherpa, perhaps in some ways, helping the brand through all of this. I think, you know, more and more being, as I said, that business problem solver versus a sort of channel production house will, will be right. more and more important. And I think being very, very flexible because, you know, there will be some clients who want to leverage this set of capabilities from them and another that wants to leverage a different one and, and a client that may wish to evolve to saying, help me with this for now, but I want to be transparent and saying, at some point, I feel I need to bring this in-house and don't turn that into sort of a, a struggle. Right. But I think for them to be very flexible in terms of what and how they deliver will be critical as well. Right. I, I think some of the things I'm thinking about as you as you describe this is a vision of a, a little bit skinnier agency than than we typically would see, you know, with the scalable resources and senior folks with a lot of junior folks doing a lot of the work to more of a flat organization potentially, more expertise in orchestrating so. or, and really playing an architect role. Yeah. Um, and and thought partnership. Yeah. Well another yeah. trend I've sort of seen you know, in places I've been and, and elsewhere is there was a phase of getting very cost conscious and very lean and stripping out everything that felt non-essential from the agency contract and then realizing, wow, I've created a script factory right. and I can't turn to my agency and get back from them provocative thinking about my brand and, and kind of my business and a realization that, you know, what I need to build back in and give them the room to bring some of that expertise and perspective and, and seniority so that we can have a rich dialogue about, about how do we build the business. So I think that, that you know, is very consistent with what you're saying as well. I, what I want to do now is kind of step back from all of this work talk <laughs> and, uh, and think, about, think about you as the individual and, and just for fun, what brands or companies are you looking at? Do you take notice of or you think other people should take notice of? Well, I have to admit, I'm a big fan of what uh, Airbnb has been doing. You know, it kind of starts with their business model, which, you know, Peter Diamandis would say, you know, focuses on abundance rather than 
scarcity. You know, the notion of rather than a typical hotel chain, which would invest vast amounts of capital in building a hotel and then marketing the scarcity, which is represented by that limited number of rooms by the beach. You know, Airbnb spends zero capital building anything, but rather leverages the abundance called all the homes in the world. So similar to a, you know, Uber doesn't buy cars, but leverages the abundance of all the cars that are out there. So great sort of really transformational business model. Unlike Uber, I think Airbnb has managed to do all of that, but still maintain sort of a kinder, gentler image, unlike what you know, seems to be the slightly darker image that, that Uber has fairly or unfairly started to acquire. I particularly love Airbnb's positioning, and I, I'm always a fan of marketing where you can clearly see just a huge, throbbing consumer insight sitting in the middle of it. And this notion of belong anywhere, it's just so powerful. It just goes right at this notion of wanting experience, wanting authenticity, wanting a sense of affiliation. Um, so for all the different places they could have gone in terms of how to position this interesting proposition, this notion of when you, when you Airbnb, you're not just going to Paris, you're becoming part of Paris. You're living there, um, I think was just brilliant. And to be able to capture all that, you know, in two words, just a masterpiece of concision, I think is just great, great artistry. And then finally, you know, I think uh, where they've just announced they're going was also really brilliant. So again, here you are, Airbnb, you've got this huge thing and you're looking at where do we go next? It would be really tempting to go a lot of places that might sort of take you off track and, and dilute your brand. You know, we should sell food. We should, you know, what, what doesn't connect to a place you're staying, right? It'd be easy to come up with a dozen bad ideas. But the notion of expanding into experiences, right? And packaging up experiences that are unique and engaging and are of and by the people of that place. Right. So you're not just doing something fun. You're not just, you know, taking a zip line ride, but you're, you know, going surfing in Malibu with a local Malibu surfer dude. Right. That's just <laughs> a brilliant expansion in deepening and strengthening of their core brand proposition. So I think they're uh, I think they're doing some cool stuff. Nice. Again, thinking about yourself, what fuels your success or, or what drives you personally? Yeah. Well, you know, at this rather advanced stage of my life, you know, I've had the chance to. <laughs> You're, really not, you're, think, not, you're not that old. Come on. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Tell that to my back. Um, you know, I had the chance to do some thinking about what do I really get jazzed by and why am I doing this and what do I like? And, you know, it's just, it's gotten really clear to me that very simply, I like working with smart people that I like, looking for new ways of doing things. And as I look back at just about every job I've had, there's always been this imperative of how do we get from here to there fast? world is changing. We've got to reinvent ourselves. We retire a little phone company. How do we move into this crazy world of the internet? Or financial services is going online, you know, build an online brokerage. There's always been this premium looking for creative solutions, challenging existing thinking, looking for clarity in, in a muddy soup of ambiguity. So back to this whole brain notion, I, I, I do love the whole brain challenge of you know, thinking through the murky strategic issues and then putting on the creative hat and debating the nuances of language with you know the cool cats from the agency to generate marketing magic that, uh, that moves hearts and minds. So, you know, it's pretty simple at the end of the day. I just, I love that process of, it's almost, you know, I liken it to uh, the jazz band leader where you want really talented people in this kind of flexible mix, creatively generating and doing it in a way that, you know, makes awesome music together, but that is sort of organic in, in real time. The last question, where do you think marketing's going? We've talked a lot about a lot of pendulum shifts earlier in the conversation, but I'm just curious where do you think it's going? Yeah. Well, one of many things we'll see is to see this traditional labels of organizations and roles get less and less helpful over time. 
you know, we're already seeing a great convergence to functions and teams in all kinds of places. Got PR blending with marketing social verging on customer service. You've got brand management rubbing up against marketing insights and analytics blending into IT. Customer experience touches virtually every aspect of the organization. And then and it goes on. And as we discussed earlier, this is demanding a more expansive talent model and a broader mindset. But I think it's going to eventually force us to really reconsider how we organize, how we get work done. You know, maybe instead of these hard-coded, straight-line industrial org charts, we need to think about you know, more flexible team brace structures, you know, maybe like the way the consultancies work, where you've got mm -hmm. different people with, with, you know, particular skill sets that come together for a focused piece of work and then, you know, reform like an amoeba in different permutations to work on the next one with, you know, perhaps broad functional affiliations for the sake of best practices and community of skill set, but less these sort of rigid silos. Because, you know, I've seen over time, we spend more and more time and energy on discussing team charters and overlaps and who does what and coordination and liaison and process and steering committees, all of which says to me that you know our org charts are increasingly getting in our way and may need some creative thinking in and of themselves. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.